Theodore Pendergrass on KBLA Talk 1580, Teddy Bear. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, it is good when somebody loves you back. I'm not sure that uh, Clarence Thomas loves us back in the way that Thurgood Marshall loved us back. We're going to talk about it. We're going to unpack it in this hour with our guest Daniel Keel. In this hour, a conversation about the transition interpreting justice from Thurgood Marshall to Clarence Thomas. The two men could not be more different. I will avoid the metaphor of uh, as different as black and white. Leave that alone for now. And just say that the replacement of Thurgood Marshall with Clarence Thomas back in 1991 has proven to be particularly momentous. Not only did it shift the ideological balance of the court, it was inextricably entangled uh, with the persistent American dilemma uh, of race. Um, and as you well know, I think race is uh, perhaps the most intractable issue in this country. I digress on that for the moment. Uh, I've been excited about this conversation. I look forward right now to commencing a dialogue with author and Professor Daniel Keel. Professor Keel, good to have you on this program, sir. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to have you, and uh, thank you for the time. A lot to talk about. Glad we've got the hour to unpack it. So uh, just uh, as I often tell guests, uh, you're probably used to talking in sound bites. We've got an hour. We want to work this thing out, so take your time, uh, and uh, let's uh, let's uh, let's uh, try to figure out what this transition has been all about from uh, uh, Thurgood Marshall to Clarence Thomas. I'm always fascinated, as an author myself, always fascinated by the backstory of why uh, writers, in your case, uh, professors as well, decide to research in certain lanes. What is it about this journey, this transition uh, between or from Marshall to Thomas that so interests you to spend all this time researching it? Sure. There's a few things that I think I would point to that connect to my own life experiences. The first thing is, what is it about school desegregation and school justice that draws me? And I think that I look back at my own schooling experiences here in Memphis and look, draw some lessons about, you know, I grew up in the aftermath of desegregation and was schooling, schooling in the 80s and 90s and diverse classrooms or diverse schools, but not diverse classrooms. And I don't know that I was really processing through that as a kid, but I definitely look back on it and see the complexities of trying in a diverse community to create schooling justice. Mm -hmm. And I think my schools would be held up as, you know, exemplars of that, but I don't think my experiences necessarily bear that out. And so that's kind of what drew me into you know, education law and, and, and educational justice as something to spend my time on, but more directly on the topic of Justices Marshall and Thomas. I teach a course here at the University of Memphis Law School called Education and Civil Rights, and we trace, you know, sort of the lead up to Brown versus Board of Education and spend probably um, a lot of time on the aftermath of Brown versus Board of Education. That's a sort of central case study of the course. Mm -hmm. And in doing that, we you know, I'm assigning cases like a like a law school course, and I often am utilizing concurrences and dissents from the Supreme Court on, you know, the important topics that are happening in the post-Brown experience. And I'm biased on this because it's my area of study, but I think that so much of American citizenship, the questions, important questions of American citizenship are tied up in that post-Brown story. How do you exist? How do you uh, account for undoing legal segregation using the very institutions, schools that had 
you know, been so important to creating the oppressive society that it existed, you know, before, or at least was allowed to exist by law before Brown versus Board of Education. And so in doing that course, I would end up pairing opinions, not with any sort of intent to do so, just because that was the way that the post-Brown arc of the story went. And I sometimes would end up pairing an opinion from Justice Marshall with an opinion from Justice Thomas. And my students would react to to that juxtaposition really strongly. Mm. I think it's probably because, if I'm being honest, a lot of the students would self-select into my course are probably pretty skeptical of Justice Thomas's view on these kinds of questions. And they would see the um, contrast, but they would also see the, um, on some level, the merits of the argument that Justice Thomas was making in the context of our broader course. And so it was really kind of their inspiration, you know, and their excitement that got me thinking, like, maybe there's more to this than just, you know, these are the, the at that time, the two black justices that we've had, and they obviously are very different from one another. Um, but the complexity of their thought juxtaposed against one another, I think, is it, it's you know, it really does touch on so many questions of American citizenship. Mm, that's a great foundation. Now we can take off. Thank you for that. Uh, and let's take sure. off. Uh, let me start with this. Uh, we'll start broad and we'll, we'll, we'll get more specific as we move through this hour. Um, but I'm fascinated by your framing uh, of the post-Brown story of America. Uh, we, we could spend hours, of course, and you're a law professor, so you do this yeah. every day. So we could spend hours mm-hmm. just on this one question. I don't have hours. I have this hour. I don't have hours, plural. But before we get too deep in the other stuff, specifically uh, interpreting uh, justice from, from Marshall to Thomas and the juxtaposition of their cases and what their students see and what you've written in this text, my, my initial question here is um, how would you frame whatever you think is the post-Brown story of America, Brown v. Board. Woo. Yeah, so I mean I'm I am grateful that we have an hour, but yes, this would take many more many more hours on this on this particular question alone. Um, I think that the question that's being asked after Brown is the question of coexistence in multiracial democracy. Mm. Um, one thing that I um, really come back to, especially in the last five or six years is something that Thurgood Marshall said in uh, when he was lawyer Marshall in the Cooper versus Aaron case, which is connected to the Little Rock Nine and school desegregation in, in Little Rock. And he's arguing, you know, so what's happening, a little bit of background in that case, the school board in Little Rock was asking for a delay after um, the year of the Little Rock Nine had gone so with, with, with so much controversy and, co- and confrontation. And um, Thurgood Marshall is arguing against that delay, and he's saying something along the lines of, this country can't continue to exist if people's resistance to coexistence is going to be allowed to divert the courts and the justice system from enforcing clear rights. Mm-hmm. And here we had clear rights of, you know, of, of access to schools and... It was being denied based on, you know, essentially open resistance to it because, you know, we didn't want to. And Justice Marshall was, yes, he was obviously a strong advocate for black rights and for racial justice. But the argument that he was making 
in this particular moment. And yes, it's partially about the audience, right? He's speaking to nine white men on the Supreme Court and, you know, wants to speak to them in some way. But he's not making a racial justice argument. He's making a future of this country argument Mm -hmm. that if we allow the open resistance to coexistence to govern, then, um, you know, we're going down a really, really dangerous path. And I think that that's such a powerful statement about what really was at stake in the post-Brown, in the post-Brown world. And, you know, there's a lot of specifics about it, you know, the relationship of local government to, to federal, federal government, <clears throat> excuse me, and um, obviously the educational questions that arise and, and the role of the judiciary. There's a ton of things that also go mm-hmm. on, but I think at its core, that's what I think that story yeah. is about. And um, and it's happening in schools, which are the, you know, there's a recent case that referred to schools as the nurseries of democracy, the place where we, you know, where we become citizens, where we learn to become citizens, where we learn to exist in a, you know, in some instances, though not as many as probably it ought to be, in a multiracial multi-ethnic, multi-everything um, community. Um, that's a lot. Uh, again, I'm glad we have the hour, as uh, you said a moment ago, to unpack this. Uh, let me just say this, a couple of things before we move forward here. One, um, pardon the pun, but the jury, to my mind, is still out on that question. The jury is still out yep. as to whether or not we can peacefully coexist in a multiracial uh, democracy. The jury is still out on that question as to whether or not we can, in fact, peacefully coexist in a multiracial democracy. I want to interrogate that notion as we move through this hour. The other thing I want to interrogate with uh, Professor Daniel Keel is why schools were then and still now at the epicenter of that debate. I mean, think of all the spaces and all the places in this country, all the places and all the spaces in this uh, experiment in democracy, as I prefer to call it. Um, and and schools uh, continue to be the epicenter of so many of these contentious and momentous, these critical debates. Why schools? Um, you ever thought about that? I want to ask that question. Why schools? And then, of course, we'll get into the, the, the sweet spot, as it were, the meat of this conversation, that juxtaposition, as he put it, between Thurgood Marshall and Clarence Thomas and how we interpret justice uh, from Thurgood Marshall to Clarence Thomas. As you can tell, we got a whole lot to talk about on KBLA Talk 15. Our guest this hour is University of Memphis law professor Daniel Keel, whose book is called The Transition, Interpreting Justice from Thurgood Marshall to Clarence Thomas, out just this month, in fact. Um, and uh, just getting started, a lot to talk about in this hour. Uh, professor Keel, let me come back to this uh, initial uh, question that I posed. Uh, and interrogate that a bit further, and we'll we'll move from there. Uh, to my mind, and I thought I heard you say mm-hmm, in the background. Uh, I'm not I'm not sure if you were agreeing or disagreeing. Either way, I want to hear your take <laughs> on whether or not you agree with me that the jury is still out on whether or not we can, in fact, long term peacefully coexist in a truly multiracial democracy. So I wouldn't frame it as the jury is out because the jury doesn't go out until all the evidence has been submitted. Ah, I, I like the, that. It, I like that. I like that. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> it it is the project that is the work. I mean, I it, I work with colleagues who do really interesting and important work, but I believe strongly that you know the existential question, you know, 
for our society, you know, leaving aside any sort of environmental existential issues. But the societal existential question is whether we can get this right. And uh, I absolutely think it is uncertain. Uh, so I, I was mm-hmm in an in a agreement, I think. Yeah. Um, on that particular question. Yeah. I, I just I just reminded myself I'm talking to a law professor. I better be careful using my legal terminology because <laughs> <laughs> you're right. The jury doesn't go out until all the evidence is in. And I take you. And we're, we're accumulating it right now. Every, you know, we're accumulating it every day. And, and I think maybe we feel differently about this today than we might have 20 years ago. Um, but yeah, it's yeah. an ongoing project. Where, where, where do you think we are in the accumulation of the evidence about whether or not we can peacefully coexist in a multiracial democracy before the jury goes out? Where are we at in the collection, uh, the accumulation of the data in this moment, you think? Oh, um, I'm not a historian, but I do know enough to know that the moments where there is progress where there seems to be a movement in the direction of coexistence, especially legalized, you know, legally embraced coexistence, are always met with um, a retrenchment, a sort of pushback. And I, I feel like we're in a pushback moment where mm-hmm. we're, we're moving, you know, we tiptoed closer maybe um, towards, yes, we can coexist, and I think that we are on that path. I like to believe that. Um, but it definitely feels like this moment is a moment where we're uh, in sort of a pulling back, a, a retrenchment after, you know, after some progress. We've seen that after the Civil War, after the Civil Rights Movement, after Brown, you know, the Brown story in particular as well. So I think that's where we are on it. Yeah. Um, let me ask now uh, the other question that I posed moments ago, and that is historically, uh, and this is this is your lane, you're not a historian, but this is your lane. Historically, though, what do you make of the fact that so many of these legal battles um, that we have fought and frankly continue to fight to your brilliant point uh, about whether or not we can coexist peacefully in a multiracial democracy seem to be uh, set in schools. Why are schools always at the epicenter of these kinds of debates? Yeah, so the book is really, you know, it's, it doesn't say so in the title. It's, it's obviously about the Supreme Court in, in some way, but it's very much a school's book. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that the answer to why it's very much a school's book is because citizenship is very much a school's question, right? A question, uh, uh, schools are a forum where so much of our citizenship gets reflected. It's in fact the place where most of us have most of our contact with government. So if I think of citizenship as the relationship between citizens and government, or even in some ways the relations among citizens in a multiracial democracy, you know, the place where we have to spend time, right? There's nothing else we have to do, but we have compulsory education mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, I guess taxes and um, schools are, are it. So it's that important. And I think that um, the other thread that exists in the book, you know, besides the court and besides schools, is clearly race. And race and schools is such a central part of that citizenship question. And so I often tell the story about um, the Memphis massacre that occurred here in the, you know, it's sort of post-Civil War Reconstruction era in Memphis. And one of the first things that was built by um, the Freedmen's Bureau here in Memphis was a school for black children. 
and there was this, you know, without going into too many of the details of this of this altercation that you know occurred between some black soldiers and um, largely white police force here. Mm-hmm. The riot that ensued, the first building burned, was the school for black children, and you know that may I wasn't there. I don't know enough to really assert this as 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 fact, but it's so symbolic to me that the school seems to be the place where we build norms as a society, where we provide opportunity regardless of where you came from, and that that would be a target and that would be the first place burned down in this moment of, you know, starting to deliver on some of those promises of access, opportunity, justice for black children at that particular time. And I think that, you know, that's an old story, a story in the from the 1800s, but I don't think it's an unfamiliar story. And maybe we're not burning schools down, but we still see schools being a, a major battleground to control social norms and to build the citizens of our future. So I, th- I think schools are so central to our existence, you know, as, as a multiracial democracy, multiracial society, how, however you want to, to mm-hmm. frame it, um, they are a central forum in that in that struggle. What's fascinating for me uh, as I think about it is that inside the classroom, I'm talking now, the the photograph of American students is very different now, obviously, than it was when Brown v. Ward was argued and adjudicated. Very different uh, 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 imagery now that one gets when one looks inside U.S. classrooms. Uh, as we all know, we are moving uh, ever closer to the day uh, in the not-too-distant future where America, for the first time, will be a nation that is, uh, people call it, majority-minority. Uh, and that's reflected, of course, in our classrooms. For example, here in Los Angeles, this station is heard across the nation, but we're flagshipped here in L.A., in the Los Angeles Unified School District, there are over 100 different languages spoken in this one school district. Over 100 different languages spoken in this school district. Wow. Um, that gives you a clear view of, of what's happening across the country. Again, uh, that's not rocket science. We all know that. The classrooms look different now than they did. The students look different now than they did in Brown v. Board. Then it was just basically black and white. Now there's so much more going on. How do you think that reality impacts in the years to come whether or not schools will remain a hotbed a legal hotbed of debate about whether or not we can coexist in a multiracial democracy as we see the browning and blackening and other coloring of classrooms in this country does that make sense as a question i think so i think that i mean part of the answer is that the current environment and the sort of movement to control curriculum uh, you know suggests that it's still very much a forum where we're going to be having these kinds of conversations. And I guess I would say the makeup of the students might look very different than it did when it when we were dealing with Brown versus Board of Education. And in isolated places, the school boards are certainly looking very different than the school boards that existed in the post-Brown world. Right. But the broader power structure, I think, is still in place. Mm-hmm to where there's real questions about the commitment to educational justice. And so, you know, yes, we have um, a diverse overall student population, but we still have so much 
isolation and so many fences between school districts or between private schools and public schools or between, you know, even between schools in different states. And so I, I see a lot of recreation of hierarchy in our school systems, even as it becomes more diverse. And so my my impression is that they're going to remain a very central part of the of the overall struggle. When you say recreation, you are witnessing or seeing a recreation of hierarchy. By that, you mean what exactly? Well, I think that in the the dream of let's say Brown versus Board of Education, and you know, just bringing it back to sort of Thurgood Marshall's vision and the vision of Charles Hamilton Houston and others who you know, helped put in place the legal strategy that led to Brown versus Board of Education was that schools should be a place where opportunity is provided to all students. And that would allow for skill building Mm -hmm. so that, you know, your work ethic and your talent and your, um, that that's what dictates your future more than, you know, who who your parents are, what color your skin is, uh, how much money you have, etc. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that there's, you know, a story about Brown in which breaking down that, the, that hierarchy was a real possibility. And so I guess what I'm saying, what I'm trying to say is that that hierarchy is recreated in a lot of different ways over the 70 years since Brown versus Board of Education. You know, as, as I alluded to before with the Thurgood Marshall in Cooper versus Aaron mm-hmm. comment, you know, that's a case that's about resistance to that vision of everyone gets to go to the same type of school, or not the same type of school, everyone has access to the same opportunities. And I think that even as we have a far more diverse student population, and it has to be said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm maybe sounding a little harsh here. It has to be said that there are significant opportunities that didn't exist in 1954, sure. and many people have taken great advantage of those opportunities, and and that's what gives me hope that mm-hmm. that when the jury does come back on this question, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna come through all right, um, but. There's a lot of the other yeah. that's happening, a lot of um, situations in which there's efforts, sometimes deliberate, sometimes maybe unconscious, to ensure that educational opportunities are stronger, yeah. are more robust for some students than other so, students. And to your point, uh, I'm watching my clock here. We've got news, traffic, and sports in about 45 seconds. We'll continue on the other side and get straight away. Uh, into the sweet spot, as it were, the juxtaposition specifically between Thurgood Marshall and Clarence Thomas as we interpret justice uh, with Professor Daniel Keel. We'll get to that in, uh, in just a few moments here uh, on the other side of news, traffic, and sports. So I'm looking forward to that part. But one of the things, um, one of the bits of evidence, I think that the jury, uh, back to the metaphor we've been using through at this hour, uh, the jury um, uh, doesn't go out to all the evidence is in, as Professor Keel reminded us. And one of the pieces of evidence, it seems to me, that they have to consider uh, is the politicization of school boards. Uh, we could spend an hour, again, just talking about that, the way that school boards in this country are being more and more politicized. Republicans are doing a much better job than Democrats stacking uh, these school boards because they understand they control the narrative about the schools, which happen to be the hotbed, the legal hotbeds of these cases, about whether or not we can peacefully coexist 
in a multiracial democracy. Uh, that conversation uh, could, again, go on for hours about the way school boards are being politicized. But when we come forward, Daniel Keel will get straight away into his book, The Transition, Interpreting Justice from Thurgood Marshall to Clarence Thomas on KBLA Talk 15. At one point in his career, Harry Belafonte was known as the King of Calypso. Uh, we're just about 25 minutes away from our one-hour tribute to Harry Belafonte. I've been honored in the course of my career uh, to not just be his friend and his brother, uh, his travel companion, uh, his uh, his dinner dinner companion. Uh, so much fun I've had over the course of my career with Mr. B, uh, as I affectionately call him. Uh, but uh, I've been honored to sat with him for so many conversations on radio, on television, in front of live audiences in this country and indeed around the globe. Uh, we were up late last night working, but we're going to curate for you, I think, an hour that you um, won't hear anywhere else. I say this with humility, uh, but I think I've got the best Harry Belafonte stuff out there. Uh, over decades of conversations with him, and I'm going to uh, do my best uh, to bring you the best of Harry Belafonte in our third and final hour today. So, uh, again, just a few minutes away from that at the top of our final hour today, a tribute for the hour to Harry Belafonte in his own words. Uh, in this hour, we continue our conversation now with Daniel Keel, uh, professor of law at University of Memphis, uh, a new book uh, just out called The Transition, Interpreting Justice from Thurgood Marshall to Clarence Thomas. Now I want to get right to the meat of the text, uh, and specifically where we started this conversation uh, about the juxtaposition between Thurgood Marshall and Clarence Thomas, uh, Professor Keel made the point earlier that oftentimes he assigns uh, his students um, to do uh, work uh, that starkly reveals how different uh, uh, Thurgood Marshall was uh, uh, from Clarence Thomas. And I want to just uh, run straight to that and use the rest of our time to really unpack that. So, Professor Keel, with that said, um, take your time. Uh, let's talk specifically now about the juxtaposition as laid out in this book and as laid out. Uh, with the assignments you offer your students, um, comparing uh, Marshall and Thomas. Take it away. Sure. So I think part of the book begins by by talking about what they have in common. And I think that it's important to note that both Marshall and Thomas, and I think part of the project of the book is is pushing against this, but both Marshall and Thomas, as justices, have historically been underrated, I, I believe. I think that um, both of them kind of suffered um, criticisms about their intelligence, racist criticisms about their intelligence. Both of them have been painted in various ways as being sort of uh, puppets of uh, allegedly intellectually superior colleagues with whom they did vote often, but um, certainly aren't connected to, you know, and aren't subservient to, and uh, they're, they're equal justices, as, as all justices are. And so with Thurgood Marshall, that was often William Brennan, that, that he was, you know, sort of thought to be like an extra vote for William Brennan and for Clarence Thomas up until uh, Justice Scalia's passing, Antonin Scalia's passing. Um, he was, Thomas was often referred to as a, as a puppet. And, and so part of the project here is to sort of examine, you know, and I don't think it's that much of a mystery as to sort of why we talk about these justices in that way. And we don't, you know, often do that with regard to um, other justices. In addition, you know, the other sort of obvious commonality is the, the, the most superficial and staring you in the face is that 
Um, no other justices until Ketanji Brown Jackson has lived experience as a black American. Mm-hmm. And that that informs um, a, a person's perspective in, in, a, in a way that is distinct from, um, from a white American or from a Latino American. And, and I think that that perspective, especially when we're talking about questions of citizenship, is really, really valuable. And so they have these commonalities, but clearly they don't approach the work in a, you know, in a, in a different, in a, in a, in the same way, right? So, um, the, the most obvious difference in terms of biography is generational. Mm-hmm. Thurgood Marshall is, of course, um, of a generation above, uh, before Clarence Thomas. And so the opportunities that Clarence Thomas gets in his schooling are very different than the opportunities that Thurgood Marshall had in his schooling, and in fact are created in large part by Thurgood Marshall. Um, there's, you know, one part of the book is talking a little bit about how at, at this moment where the Savannah black community is trying to discuss how best to confront the racial discrimination in their community, and this is uh, Savannah where Clarence Thomas grew up, mm-hmm. Thurgood Marshall's in town. You know, and he is as as a lawyer is in town doing doing the work, and um, and so that generational difference is is absolutely crucial, and so it translates into um, very 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 different perspectives on the role of government, and um, very very different perspectives on the correct approach to pursuing racial justice. Thurgood Marshall sees a world in which the law is excluding. And the law is creating stigma, and the law is um, distributing opportunities based on race. And he thinks that it's the government's responsibility to amend that, to correct that, to remedy that. And that perspective influences almost everything that he does. And that's not just on uh, race cases, that's, you know, on First Amendment cases and, and, um, uh, religious free expression cases, and um, he sees a vision of government as a guarantor of access to opportunity, and he wants to um, create the circumstances in which the government can deliver on that promise and intervene when people are getting in the way. And Clarence Thomas, from his life experience, takes a very different role of government. He does not live with the same legal um, exclusions that had marked Thurgood Marshall's lived experience, and and instead he's taking you know inclusion. Thurgood Clarence Thomas went to um, all black Catholic schools through eighth grade, but then for the rest of his schooling experience was in um, was a lone or uh, extreme minority in predominantly white settings, and he of course experienced racism in those settings as well, and so I often talk about how he experienced the stigmas of inclusion. Mm. And um, his, his perspective is more the leave-me-alone perspective. I'm going to sort of make it on my own. And, you know, that's the narrative he tells about himself. And um, that sort of translates itself into get the government out of my business, mm-hmm. freedom of government. Mm-hmm. The government shouldn't be making racial classifications at all. And so they come to these very different points based on where they came from. Yeah. Um, I love the way you frame that. It's a beautiful framing that one, um, 
uh, is navigating the stigma of exclusion. That would be Thurgood Marshall. The other is yeah. trying to deal with the stigma of inclusion. That'd be Clarence Thomas. Never heard. I've had many, many conversations in my career, as you can imagine, about Thurgood Marshall and Clarence Thomas. Uh, never heard it put <laughs> so succinctly and so beautifully. I love that. Beautifully, I love that. Again, okay. one suffering from the stigma of exclusion, the other trying to navigate the stigma of inclusion, make that Marshall and Thomas. When we come forward, I want to come to one issue um, uh, that uh, I think makes a, a clear uh, distinction between these two men. It's the issue of affirmative action. We are awaiting a decision from this Supreme Court. Um, uh, the, the the jury ain't out on this. <laughs> it is, but it ain't. It's out because we ain't, we ain't heard the decision yet. Uh, 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 it is out, rather, uh, for for uh, their final rendering. Uh, and so on the one hand, the jury's out. On the other hand, it's not because we know how they're going to rule, ultimately, uh, I suspect. Uh, I'd be really surprised, um, like to the level of, you know, full cardiac arrest, if this Supreme Court, as currently structured, does not... Uh, uh, end affirmative action as we know it. That's what we're all expecting. In that regard, Clarence Thomas, um, uh, uh, to take his educational experience a little a little further, Clarence Thomas is going to Yale, as you know. He's a Yale Law graduate. But he gets into Yale uh, essentially because of affirmative action. Uh, that's what got him into Yale. Uh, the difference between uh, Marshall and Thomas is that Marshall will tell you um, where he hear that he stands on the shoulders, stood on the shoulders of a whole lot of people before him. Uh, Clarence Thomas wants to deny or act as if he got into Yale uh, purely on merit and that affirmative action had nothing to do with his getting into the Yale Law School. And then furthermore, he gets on the Supreme Court and wants to pull up the ladder, as it were, or pull the rug from underneath everybody else and uh, and vote every chance he's had to, to end corrective programs like affirmative action. It is one of the primary reasons uh, why I am oftentimes disgusted respectfully with Clarence Thomas, uh, just not acknowledging the help he received, but wanting to deny others that same help. That's my commentary, not Professor Keels. I can do that because it's my show. You're listening to Tavis Smiley on the KBLA Talk 15. I was being a bit of a smart aleck a, a moment ago, Professor Keel, of saying that I can say that because I don't want to make you political, but I do want <laughs> to get your take uh, on what I said. We know it's just a matter of time. Uh, we're getting closer to June. All these uh, decisions will start being released. Uh, we are fully expecting that they are going to end affirmative action as we have known it. Uh, even though Clarence Thomas was a beneficiary of affirmative action getting into the Yale Law School, my question more broadly, again, to keep you out of the political lane, uh, is how you juxtapose Thomas and Marshall when it comes to corrective programs like affirmative action in their renderings, in their rulings, in their decisions. Absolutely. I mean, this is a, a huge part of this juxtaposition for sure, and it was very much a part of the actual transition in 1991. President Bush had just vetoed a civil rights bill uh, based in part on the idea of his opposition to quotas. And yet, um, when Thurgood Marshall retired, he decided to choose a black replacement. And I think it's very difficult to look at that choice and say that it wasn't influenced by, uh, that it wasn't influenced by race. And so I think your read is probably right that, that the, um, there are the votes on the court right now to end affirmative action in higher education as we know it. And I would note on that point, just kind of zooming out a little bit from mm -hmm, it, yes, mm -hmm. there is an actual like legal effect of what that will impact on access to college and the decisions that admissions committees make at uh, colleges and universities. But I think what's really um, sort of most discouraging, perhaps, I guess I would say, about a, uh, an outcome like that is that is, is what it says about the broader project we were talking about earlier, 
about multi, you know, coexistence in multiracial democracy because it, it suggests that um, the history of oppression is not something worth pushing against and that diversity in our schools is not something worth affirmatively pursuing. And I think that that's a really destructive uh, idea to sort of be legitimized at the Supreme Court. I would just, you know, I would say that I, I know I've spent enough time reading about Clarence Thomas to, and he said these things directly in some of his affirmative action opinions, but you know, he definitely thinks that whether he was admitted into Yale on affirmative action or not is not relevant. All African American <laughs> students, he would say, are um, are impacted by someone even asking the question. And I think that he writes very personally about that. And his perspective is that the best way to end the per- per- uh, the the perpetual relevance of race is to stop making race be possible. And I just wanted to juxtapose that with a story that Thurgood Marshall told often. He was such a great storyteller, mm-hmm. and I'm going to not do it total justice here. Um, but, you know, he often told a story that, you know, he's ridden trains through, you know, every state in this country. And at no point did he have to look down to see what color his skin was. He knew that race was relevant at every step of uh, the American experience in, in everyday life. And felt that because of that reality, it was necessary and, in fact, um, essential mm-hmm. that the government do what it could and schools do what they could to create access and opportunity for all Americans. That was the vision that, that he pursued um, throughout his career as a lawyer and on the court. When we come forward in our remaining moments with Professor Daniel Keel, author of the book, The Transition, Interpreting Justice from Thurgood Marshall to Clarence Thomas, out now. Uh, we will um, get to this final question, this exit question, which, uh, which takes me back to something he said earlier in our conversation about what his students uh, often learn. He teaches at uh, law at the University of Memphis Law School. He was saying earlier that his students oftentimes when they juxtapose Marshall and Thomas come across merits. In some of Thomas's arguments, Thomas merits is the phrase that he used. I'm just curious as to what his students, uh, who he also admitted, are more partial to Marshall's uh, rulings and decisions than they are to Thomas's. And yet they find oftentimes merits in Thomas's arguments. I'm curious as to what that looks like when we come forward. Daniel Keel on KBLA Talk 1580. Mr. Keel, we've got about four minutes left in this conversation, which I've enjoyed immensely. Four minutes left in this conversation. And then we'll move to our tribute. Uh, to the now late, great Harry Belafonte for the entire uh, next hour. Uh, that said, um, you mentioned earlier in this conversation that your students oftentimes, uh, when you give them assignments, um, end up juxtaposing uh, uh, Clarence Thomas and his predecessor, Thurgood Marshall. You mentioned Thomas merits that they oftentimes come across. What do you mean by that exactly? Sure. So the one that sticks out the most in my mind is uh, from this case, a 1995 case called Missouri versus Jenkins. It's about desegregation in the Kansas City, Missouri uh, school district. And it's a really a case, you know, without going into too much detail, it's a case about how much discretion that federal courts should have in pursuing um, integration, right, or pursuing educational equity. And Thomas uh, concurs with the outcome, which is that uh, which limits how much discretion, you know, I- exists. And this is one of the first times he writes about schooling in this way. And um, I'm going to paraphrase a little bit. Um, he's making a critique of integration. 
and he's making a critique of integration as being rooted in an idea of black inferiority. And he says, it never ceases to amaze me the extent to which beliefs about black inferiority can inform the you know uh, opinions of of some people and so he he's critiquing integration yeah in a uh in, in that particular way and i think what strikes students is because is that we read earlier in the semester it's essay by uh, w.e.b du bois called does the negro need separate schools in which he makes a very similar argument in, in, a, in a different context a very similar argument about whether integration is itself rooted in this idea that there needs to be, you know, uh, people sitting next to someone else, that there's right. some sort of magic in that that makes it that makes it a better education. And I think um, that critique is a valid critique. I don't know that it's a it's an unimpeachable critique, but right. I think that there is some there's something to that critique, and that it's Thomas that's making it. I think surprises. Um, surprises some students, and so it you know it's a great learning opportunity for us and a discussion opportunity. You know what what yeah. does he mean? Is he missing anything? And um, and so you know it sparks some really interesting discussion. I think you're right. It's not unimpeachable, but it also reminds me of the, the uh, what my grandmother Big Mom always said to me that baby, even a broken clock is right twice a day. Uh, I'll leave it there. <laughs> uh, Daniel Keel, professor of law, University of Memphis Law School. The book is called The Transition, Interpreting Justice from Thurgood Marshall to Clarence Thomas. Professor Keel, congrats on the text. Thank you for this great hour of dialogue. I appreciate you, sir. Thank you so much. This has been great. Uh, up next, uh, a full hour in tribute to the late, great Harry Belafonte on KBLA Talk 1580.